Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best bits from my Times Radio show. You can listen Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, and on the Times Radio app. Right, coming up on today's episode, well, there's lots of reshuffle news. I was really excited. We'll bring you all of that. We'll discuss that with uh, Finkelvich in a moment. After that, we are taking a look at what's happening north of the border. Has Nicola Sturgeon SM peaked? Some feeling that she got a bit testy at a press conference this week. The polls seem to be moving, sliding against her. Disagreement in SNP ranks. Uh, we'll unpack all of that. That's our big thing. But first, as ever, on a Tuesday, we kick off with this. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Right, Jets, uh, I suppose we need to do this. Stay ahead of the game with instant insider knowledge and erudite opinion. What a way to do it! Matt Chorley's Westminster transfer deadline day on Times Radio. Get in! Yeah, instant political reaction and analysis. It's just like being on Match of the Day, this, isn't it? Uh, so, as things stand uh, with the reshuffle, uh, we are told that Greg Hands is going to be the chairman of the Conservative Party, replacing Nadim Zahawi. And then th- I think it's three different government departments all being chopped up. So Grant Schatz is expected to be the new Energy Security Secretary. Uh, Kemi Badenot becomes uh, Business and Trade Secretary, so she keeps trading gains business. There's a science and technology job floating around, which we might say might go to uh, uh, George Freeman. Uh, but uh, no actual sackings. It's just people l- losing bits and gaining bits. Danny, are you excited by this? <laughs> well, look, I, you know, my, my view of cabinet reshuffles, they don't make very much difference to anything except the immediate things that people are managing. And, of course, there has been a sacking or at least a resignation, which is Nadim Zahawi, which has made all this necessary. <clears throat> I think Greg, Klotz, uh, Greg Hans is quite a good choice. Um, he, he'll be good at the two aspects of the job. He's pretty uh, reasonable on the media. Not, I think, stellar, but pretty reasonable on it. And he's, um, I think he'll be an excellent manager of the uh, structure of the, of the of central office. So he's not a bad choice. And it is quite an important job in the run-up to an election. I mean, as it happens, I think bigger forces than the Conservative Party's electoral organisation will uh, settle the next general election. But insofar as... Uh, the headquarters can make a difference. I think he's not not a bad choice. It's actually, I mean, it's one of those jobs. I mean, uh, it's probably more important to the electoral prospects than most other cabinet jobs. Yes, uh, it's certainly more central to it. And I suspect one of the reasons they've got the, a problem in filling it is just because people think the Conservative Party's going to lose the election and they don't want to be responsible for the defeat. The, the uh, whereas I think Greg Hans is probably ready at this point in his career to take you know the one step that he hasn't taken, which is into the Cabinet room uh, and take this job on. Uh, David, w- which of these appointments excites you the most? 
It's a pity there aren't two Greg hands, aren't there? Then we could talk about a safe pair of hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I've now exhausted my level of interest <laughs> in, in this, uh, with that with with that pitiful joke. Um, uh, <laughs> the thing that I was wondering uh, about this, because I, I, I kind of agree with with, with Danny, which is I, I I'm not sure that it makes much difference. I, I might be excited by a new science and technology uh, uh, ministry. I guess depending on its remit and so on and what it's actually given to do. Um, but the thing that I'm interested in is when one of these things happen, and maybe Danny knows this, and maybe you do, Matt, what actually happens physically? I mean, do they move all move out of one building and well, into another can. building? Or do they just suddenly do they just suddenly change what bits of the building are for and so, so on? I mean, does everybody, do all the civil servants all of a sudden find themselves engaged in a kind of week of changing letterheads and changing, telling people who they are and so on. Yes. And, and if that, so, is that is that accompanied by as much chaos as it is in any other organisation yeah, yes. when that kind of thing happens? Yes, and, I, and I, that one of the reasons why I wouldn't... I'm not really very much in favour of these things, and I, I think they'd have to... It'd have to have pretty spectacular rewards in order to make the um, reorganisation worthwhile. You know, after all, the, this these uh, Department of Energy has moved in and out of different departments um, for, for as long as I can remember. Uh, <laughs> it's and, lucky and, they've got. And, it's lucky they're called energy then. Yes, aren't? and <laughs> I don't think it. You know, I mean, obviously, the idea is to have somebody, and this does make a difference, who is the exclusive champion of a particular subject at the cabinet table and in senior ministerial council. That is the reason why you do it. But underneath, and that does make a difference. That is worthwhile. A worthwhile gain, but whether or not it's worth what happens underneath, which is precisely as you would intuit, you know, new nameplates and people moving offices and uh, people reorganising who will be the permanent secretary, an awful lot of time's got to be spent on this. And I, you know, I do wonder whether it's worth it really. Um, and actually, one of the the big changes that has happened in the in sort of recent years with government departments, they are lots of them are now based in the same building. So, uh, but I don't actually know, because the big building on Victoria Street, which is where the Department for Business is, I don't know where international trade is, is based. I think culture's in the Treasury, isn't it? So, actually, I think the bits he's chopping up probably will involve people moving around. Whereas there's a great, the Home Office building on Mar- Mar- Marsham Street. It's got loads of, you know, Def was in there. Yeah. There's lots of different departments in there. That's true, but you still have to, you move, still have to you know, move floors. And, move floors and that sort the of thing. one thing they have stopped doing, David, which is a great disappointment, is they've stopped creating new glossy logos for every department now it's just like the 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 government crest isn't it with the name of the department i remember endless foi requests about how <laughs> how much defa had spent on their new logo or <laughs> i remember defa re- redesigned their logo once because they thought it was too brown and too agricultural as a result so they, they removed the brand and cost i don't know a couple hundred thousand pounds or uh, it's all quite important. Uh, well, it, yes, well, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on any further developments as and when they happen. Uh, but I feel we've probably exhausted our, our level of interest in uh, in that. Uh, let's move on. I'm really interested in, in contrition in politics and and former prime ministers. We've seen a lot of them lately, uh, and the extent to which you need to show some contrition. So, uh, first of all, I mean, just because it's one of my favourite clips in a long, long time. This was Liz Truss speaking to the Spectator last night. Being asked essentially why, given that they agreed on everything, did she still sack her close friend and Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng? You didn't disagree on anything, did you, as far as I can work out? No. Yet he still had to go. You know, I'm... I can't, I can't say it was anything but extremely difficult. 
<laughs> never, never stops being funny, that. We'll be playing that at Christmas. Um, uh, but also, the other thing that's got me on to think about this, William Hague's written a terrific column at the Times today on exactly this subject. And he spoke to Times Radio this morning about the need for contrition in politics. Over time, somebody who shows contrition is uh, more respected and can do more with the more good with the rest of their life. But I also think it's just true. And what about politics being, you know, a closer fit with the truth? This denial of the truth is very corrosive because it, it is partly feeding the ridiculous conspiracies that plague public discourse at the moment and these this, this misrepresented victimhood where people claim to be victims when they've just failed at something. Such a good point, that, Daddy. Yeah, uh, very uh, important. So what what I was concerned about in Liz Truss's piece was less that she showed no contrition, but more that she wanted to advance again a policy which had just failed uh, and which not only failed when it, when it was introduced, she portrays it as being quite surprising that it failed. Rishi Sunak predicted it would fail in exactly the way that it did in the run-up to her doing it. And I remember the experience of watching him say those things and thinking, my goodness, she's about to be elected as Prime Minister within a few days. That seemed almost inevitable and, of course, did happen. And she's going to do this. And he's quite right. It will be a disaster. And it was, it was you know, to use, an, I think, an overused metaphor is worthwhile. It was like watching a slow-motion car crash. And the idea that afterwards she suggested that it was completely unexpected that if you drove into the middle of the motorway at a right angle, you, a lorry crashed into you. It's just, you know, because no one told her about that particular lorry. I mean, it's extraordinary. <laughs> and, and, and the idea that you would introduce complicated uh, and bold tax changes and not have considered or asked officials to consider all of the aspects of uh, the decision you were making seems completely extraordinary. But the, the importance of this is that if the Conservative Party decides to agree with her, and it is only aimed at the Conservative Party, she can't think anybody beyond that agrees with it, then the party will end up proposing to do that again. Uh, and and you know, the one advantage of the calamitous failure that that government consisted of, which cost everyone... Uh, you know, money and anxiety is that at least we might be able to eliminate that policy prescription from our list because it failed, which is the, the policy prescription, just to be clear, being unfunded tax cuts at a moment when you're already borrowing a lot of money. That and that's the crucial thing because she sort of portrays it as being uh, that the establishment was against a lower tax economy. And actually, lots of people would say, well, actually, it would be better if, if you had lower taxes, that probably would, would put to more be, money in people's pockets and help innovation. But that's not the, no, the problem. To be fair, actually, I think the contention she is making is that if you cut taxes, you will make up more revenue than you lose yeah. because you'll get growth that will compensate for it. The evidence for this just is lacking. And I've, I, it's possible that you might, uh, by cutting certain types of tax at very high rates, sometimes either it costs you nothing or you actually you might get growth for some elements of obstructive taxation. But her, the, this broader contention 
you know, was literally drawn by Art Laffer on a, on a napkin, <laughs> right? And it was the hypothesis that obviously if you get to 100%, you uh, a 0% you raise no revenue of taxation. If 100% you raise no revenue, so there must be a curve. Yeah, yeah. But what he was not able to do was put data on where that <laughs> where curve that was curve is. Or, and assumes that it's the same for every form of tax. Yeah, yeah. David, what do you think? Would it be better if... I mean, it would actually help Liz Justice calls if she showed more contrition, wouldn't it? Um, I, I always think that there's a shame there wasn't a T in Laffer. <laughs> um, as you've as you've just demonstrated i mean um uh, uh because dan's absolutely right i mean maybe there was a kind of you know a blob of food on that particular napkin that put them you know that was was supposed to give them an idea of where the data point was but uh but when the waiter tidied it away it went with it i i i watched that interview and i just as ever with liz trust i just thought i'm looking at somebody who exists in a world that's very slightly parallel it's she's from a Philip Pullman novel. The city she's in is not quite the city that you're in, etc. So you you have to get you know a kind of knife and cut the, through the fabric to find out which that city is. Um, she is the most peculiar person I think I've ever uh, has been prime minister during dur during my lifetime, um, and I just wasn't sure. I mean, she she essentially had two propositions. The first was obviously this kind of left wing establishment uh, undermines her, etc. Which um, the fa that famous communist Danny Finkelstein is a is a, <laughs> is a leading member. And the second, but the second thing that she said was true. Um, but she didn't draw the necessary conclusions from it. What she said was, the tide has gone out mm. on the low tax politics uh, in the, amongst the British electorate. That's not what they want at the moment. That's not how they see things. So essentially, what she was saying was, from the centre of government... Her attempt was to rework what all the, what the people thought and what the political weather mm. was um, within weeks. And you think, well, that's crazy. You, that's a crazy thing to attempt to do. Even if you were right, it's a crazy thing yeah. to attempt. And I think that's that's the big difference is you can't shift both uh, uh, maths and public opinion in the space of uh, about six weeks. Now, I want to talk about badges. Uh, because yesterday I spoke to Steve Wayson, who's written a new book called Badgeland, which is all about being a young socialist in the 1980s. And he <laughs> talked about how he'd amassed hundreds of badges for different causes. We wore a lot of badges in the 80s, <laughs> a lot of badges. We went on a lot of marches, um, probably because we didn't have Twitter accounts. <laughs> but that's how we, we expressed our support for various causes. So whether it's Coal Not Dole, Rock Against Racism, Free Nelson Mandela, uh, you don't see so many these days. But in the 80s, if you look at all the pictures of the marches, we were we were full of badges. How many b were successful badges, and how many were lost causes? You think? Uh, I would reckon about ninety nine percent were lost causes. <laughs> <laughs> we were... uh, David, you strike me as a man who might have had badges. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, looking, I look back uh, with some nostalgia to. I mean, badges essentially were the medieval version of the hashtag, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, 100%. Um, and uh, 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 and as your guest quite rightly said, uh, Twitter sort of kind of replaced that now because you can just kind of the the same people who would have loaded up with badges back then now load up with hashtags now. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I was looking at, I, did, I have got a few badges uh, still around. I mean, not the coal, not dark. I mean, the big ones, obviously, were the miners' strike and the anti-Nazi league. So you get badges like school kids against the Nazis, occasionally worn by extremely elderly men. Um, and you would get, and but the, the, the whole kind of coal, not dull, dig deep for the miners, etc. There were, there were, th 
really literally hundreds of iterations. And when I was a student activist, there would be um, the occasional kind of person who would be festooned with literally wearing about 20 badges. But I think most of us who were kind of, you know, kind of cool leftists thought that one badge <laughs> at a time was sufficient oh, I see. to kind of make your point. Otherwise, what you looked like was you were just jumping on every cause there was. And what was important was the cause of the moment. So you'd leave it, you'd leave it at one. Um, we also, about the same time, we were beginning to have slogans on t-shirts and so on and i think i always slightly kind of preferred those i remember i had a make love not war t-shirt which was appropriate i think probably in my kind of late teens etc more appropriate than it would be now when i'm much more like to wear one saying make war and make you know forget about making love because i'm too old <laughs> danny were you a badge man <clears throat> well i've got a large collection actually of american uh, you that, of course you have of american political buttons um they're, they're called buttons rather than yeah. badges um with things like good to mention Darth and Carter, uh, for example, <laughs> or, or, or badges from both when the government was running with Shriver and when he then, uh, w- w- and before when he was running with Eagleton. Um, so d- badges of all of all sorts, two huge uh, boards full of them from wow. uh, Teddy Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, um, obviously lots from the Kennedy era, Ted, era, Ted Kennedy, um, Pretty girls for Nixon, uh, all sorts of <laughs> all sort of things, and I and I've had to be very careful because you you've got to make this decision: Are you prepared to buy buttons where the uh, political views are offensive? So, for example, that Pretty Girls for Nixon or uh, Wallace uh, G- George Wallace uh, badges, and I in the end decided I couldn't have the test i only collect ones that i agree with so uh, because otherwise i have to start you know having start a sort of again. careful well, so careful sh- view of every single politician in american political history so i you know i've got anything from landon knox um, so you, through to, through so to danny Julie. you wouldn't collect school kids for the nazis <laughs> i did have a, but oh, I, I, did a, I had a few british i wasn't really i was going to joke when you said that you were only allowed one badge that it was oh, stalin only had one badge but probably in your case it was edward bernstein on your badge <laughs> rather than stalin but the um the we uh, i i did have a few british badges but the sdp the sdp did have a kind of sdp yeah, yeah. and young social democrat badges and i did I did have pogo on a Nazi as well, which I I didn't do any pogoing, as you can imagine. I don't really approve of the kind of violent violence implied by that badge, but it, you know, it struck me as because I, I wasn't either a leftist or cool. It struck struck me as may, a sort of lame attempt to be both. The thing is, though, I mean, because I was thinking, well, they've all died out badges. They haven't really. And the politicians wear them all the time. There's the NHS one. There's the Ukraine badge. You know, there's the sort oh, of field the the, the the sheaf of wheat. Weirdly, yesterday I was noticing for the second or third. time, Time in a few days, somebody with six or seven different badges. Um, you know, there used MP. to be that one. I'm back in. Ke- no, no, it was not. Oh, MP. It was just someone on the tube. Yeah. Um, and I just begun to wonder whether it isn't making some sort yeah. of comeback as a well, as an well, item. It, I, I, one of the things I was interested in during the uh, Danny, you and I went into the House of Lords just before the Brexit referendum, and there were several peers around wearing little pound signs which were sort of anti-euro but which were being worn as pro-brexit badges and i was surprised to see them these kind of incredibly sedate figures in very expensive suits wearing uh wearing political badges Uh, and i i'm not really sure they are making a comeback actually i mean except insofar as they're elegant i think people are far too conscious of their appearances these days that was Finkelvich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Wanovich. And you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, has Nicola Sturgeon SM peaked? 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Big question we want to ask today is, has Nicola Sturgeon SM peaked? Scotland's First Minister is certainly under a lot of pressure. She slapped bang in the middle of a huge row about her government's plans to make it easier for people in Scotland to change their gender. That's been blocked by ministers at Westminster. Her popularity, along with the SNPs, has fallen. YouGov poll at the weekend showed support as its lowest for five years. But a bit later on, we'll hear from the SNP and from the former Conservative leader in Scotland, Ruth Davidson, Times Radio colleague as well. But first, I'm joined by Alex Massey, a columnist for The Times. Morning, Alex. Uh, good morning. And we've got uh, Professor John Curtis, politics professor at the University of Strathclyde. Morning, John. Good morning to you, Matt. Uh, it's interesting in particular. Let's just pick through what happened at the press conference yesterday. Nicola Sturgeon started doing these press conferences every week, uh, it seems. Uh, yesterday she held one where she announced she was publishing her tax returns. It uh, didn't go entirely according to plan, as the SNP then accidentally released details of her bank account as well. But the briefing was dominated by the case involving Isla Bryson, the double rapist formerly known as Adam Graham, now identifying as a woman. And there were lots of questions though, about whether Nicola Sturgeon identifies Bryson as a man or a woman. First Minister, is your gender recognition reform bill dead now? The core of this matter is, is Isla Bryson a woman or not? And if Isla Bryson's not a woman, who makes that decision and on what basis? We've all been asking you, and you've been running away from the question, we have been asking you for days, do you regard Isla Bryson as a she woman? Does. Herself as a woman, I regard uh, the individual as a rapist, and in the context, to say whether the, the context of the prison service, what matters is that uh, the individual was convicted of rape, and that is what we're talking about here, and that's what I will continue to to focus on. That last question there was asked by the Glasgow Herald's Tom Gordon, who uh, had quite a lot of questions to Nicola Sturgeon. This is impressing uh, the First Minister on another difficult issue. When did you first know your husband had loaned the SNP £107,000? My husband is an individual and he will uh, take decisions about what he does with resources that belong to him uh, in line with that. And uh, I'm standing here as First Minister and that is what I'll answer for. You also talked about internal management of the SNP earlier, so you do talk about SNP matters at these events. When did you first know he'd given that money to the party? I can't recall exactly when I first knew that, but what he does with his uh, resources is a matter for and it him. it was wholly his money, any of it yours? It, it, the resources that he lent the party to, uh, to the party were resources that belonged to him. Wholly to him, yeah? They were his resources. None of it was yes, yours, no? his resources. So, Alex, um, we're not used to Nicola Sturgeon sounding rattled like that. How much pressure do you think she's under? Well, I mean, I think one has to uh, accept that a number of different things can be true concurrently. First, that Nicola Sturgeon is not having a particularly happy time right now. Secondly, this doesn't mean that her position is under uh, any kind of serious threat uh, at present. Um, but there are a number of different fronts in, upon which she is struggling. First, there is obviously the fallout from the Isla Bryson case, whereby the Scottish government or the Scottish prison service uh, initially housed uh, a, a double rapist 
in a woman's prison and not the only uh, serious offender or uh, sex offender to be housed there. Um, secondly, you know, the, you know, and this is a real problem for the First Minister because uh, the mantra trans women are women is all very well and good until you start inquiring, well, what does that mean? Is that the case in all circumstances? Is the, this mantra of trans women are women applicable? Uh, universally, and does it mean that trans people are women in precisely the same way as biological women are? Hitherto, the First Minister's line has mm. been, yes, it is. But this case clearly demonstrates, I think, that some of the concerns raised by her opponents, those critical of her gender reforms, uh, have a good deal of basis in reality, um, because yeah. managing these situations is not straightforward. Mm. And against that backdrop, there's a transfer. There's also the, the state of public services, not least the NHS in Scotland, seems to be having an impact on public opinion, John. Well, I'm not sure that's true, Matt. Uh, the honest truth is that uh, politics in Scotland now is much like politics in Northern Ireland. That is that the constitutional question dominates. And if mm. you look at the Hollywood election of a couple of years ago, you know, nearly 90% of the people who are current yes supporters were back in the SNP and only around 10% of no supporters. One of the problems of the opposition is that indeed the public are, to a measure, uh, critical of the health service and, in Scotland and its performance. Um, and it's true of uh, their record in education as well. But the trouble is that doesn't necessarily have cut through. Of course, the reason why the, the, the transgender issue is kind of not what re really wasn't the best issue upon which the uh, Scottish government defined itself in a fight with the UK government is that it's an issue where it's pretty clear as a result of the polling over the last year is that those who were advocating reform didn't really succeed in pursuing their case very successfully with public opinion. So what you've got is a parliament, which isn't it isn't just the SNP. I mean, it's the Labour Party, it's Liberal Democrats, it's also some Conservative MSPs, uh, all of whom backed the bill, uh, whereas public opinion is in a uh, rather different place. Uh, so talk us through what's happened. We saw this YouGov poll at the weekend. Talk us through what the, what those numbers show, John. Well, they there are two headlines. The first is that support for the SNP, both for Westminster and for Holyrood, is at its lowest uh, for five years. Now, there are various things going on there. In part, um, we have to bear in mind that um, the poll also showed that support for independence was down, but only down to back where it was basically this time last year. But uh, given that strong relationship between support for independence and support uh, for the SNP, that's part of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, but also it's pretty clear that for whatever reason, and the poll doesn't tell us whether or not is anything to do with gender recognition, but the poll certainly tells us uh, that support for the SNP is markedly lower and, and lower than a couple of other polls that had already shown a decline in yeah. support for independence. Sturgeon herself, um, again, her popularity is down to levels not seen to about five years ago. Now, that means she's got slightly more people who think unfavorably of her rather than favorably of her. And, you know, the truth is that the, the, the history of Sturgeon's popularity is essentially being came in very popular. That gradually dissipated as some of the arguments about the performance of the government yeah. kicked in. Then we got towards the 2019 election. Then we had COVID. And, you know, Nicola Sturgeon had a good pandemic. Um, and now that has already been gradually showing signs of easing away. And it's certainly eased away a bit more uh, in the course of recent weeks. But, you know, she is still by far and away... <laughs> The most popular politician in Scotland. That's a good point, John. Just finally then, Alex, what's your sense? Does she 
survive the year? Does she lead the S&P to the next uh, general election? Are we just getting into sort of unionist fever dream to think that, that she's in real trouble? Well, there may be a little bit of that. But, you know, it's notable that Nicola Sturgeon has consistently declined to confirm whether she will lead the SNP into the next Holyrood election, which is due in 2026. You know, lurking behind this is the reality that for most political parties, winning 40% support in the opinion polls in that elections is a tremendous result. But for the SNP, uniquely, it's not enough. Because remember, Nicola Sturgeon has pledged to fight the next general election as a de facto referendum on independence. Uh, that means that she and her independent supporting allies in the Green Party need to win 50% of the, the vote to claim any kind of mandate for independence. Um, you know, there's a special conference that's uh, been uh, held in March to, to plot a way forward for the SNP as to how it approaches not just the next general election, but the next Hollywood election. You know, so various things are up in the air there. There's a, an undercurrent of discontent within the nationalist movement that thinks that, you know, surely after Brexit and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and all sorts of other things that, that you know, independence should be doing better than it is. And so people are beginning to ask, well, why isn't that the case? Yeah. Um, why do we seem to be stuck at 45, 47% support for independence and a little bit less than that for the SNP. So that's the sort of undercurrent of questioning that the First Minister is, is, is enduring at the moment because uh, for the first time some of it is coming from within her own party. It's not just that's really uh, unionist opponents. Yeah, really interesting that. Alex Massey, really good to speak to you. Alex Massey, Times Economist, thanks very much for joining us. And Professor John Curtis uh, talking us through uh, the polling. But let's hear from two of her former political opponents now. We both take different views on the question. Former Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale was on breakfast with Stick and Asthma this morning. And this is what she had to say. Yes, she's had a very difficult week. Yes, I think for the first time in her tenure as First Minister, her personal approval ratings have gone into the negative. But most political leaders live with negative personal approving leader uh, ratings for a long time. She's an exception to the rule and has been for a very long time. I actually think the um, the difficulty that she's in over this issue will energise her and, and force her to put her shoulder to the wheel e even further to drive it through because she believes in it. So I think she'll stick at it. One thing she's got is, is resilience, uh, perseverance, uh, and she'll get through this difficult period. Kezia Douglas, there, the former Labour leader in Scotland, she thinks reports of Sturgeon's demise have been exaggerated. Well, I caught up with the former Scottish Conservative leader, Ruth Davidson, and I asked her just how difficult she thinks she thinks things are for Nicola Sturgeon. Well, I, I haven't seen her be put under this amount of internal and external pressure, basically since she took over in 2014, I don't think. Um, which is not to say that, you know, there's an imminent departure happening because... She is in total control of the party. Her husband runs it as the director of the party. She's the head of it. Uh, there's no successor, particularly in waiting. Um, and the way in which you get rid of a leader if they don't want to go is you have the men in grey suits go round and, and chap the door and say, come, come now, time is up. Uh, or you get booted out by the electorate at the ballot box. And, you know, we've not got an election for 18 months and there's, you know, there there isn't a concerted movement within the SNP to ouster. So, I mean, I I think this would be a case of, you know, rumours of her demise are greatly exaggerated. But is this a there's sort of lots of things seem to have come together at once. There's clearly the ongoing frustration from some who wished the, the independence had happened by now. There's the extraordinary row, which I'm not even sure she could have expected over the uh, gender reform bill. There's uh. 
you know, the ongoing problems with the NHS, which, yes, is happening right across the country, but it's, you know, that's firmly at her door. And the sort of divisions both within a party and, and within Scotland that we haven't seen under the sort of one-party state of the SNP for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean, Scotland's got quite an interesting political history in that there are periods where it seems as if there's a one-party hegemony um, that, that looks almost indestructible. And we, we've seen that, you know, when you had the Tories in the 50s getting, you know, more than 50% of the vote in general elections. Before that, the Liberals did very well. You had, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, Scottish Labour were, you know, just uh, master of all the surveys. You didn't, you didn't count the votes in some parts of central Scotland. You weighed them. Um, and what seems to bring parties down in Scotland actually isn't their opponents. It's hubris. Uh, or at least certainly in, in my lifetime, that's what brought Scottish Labour down, was hubris. And we're we're getting to that point, I think, with Nicola Sturgeon, that she... It's very difficult to tell who her inner circle is, if she has one, who her advisors are, if she listens to them, um, you know, what sort of outreach that she's doing. It It is very much now a case of her party in her own image and, and likeness. And... And I think the GRR bill was quite instructive, not that it, not necessarily because of the position that she took on the issue itself, but the position she took on getting the legislation through the parliament. So, for example, there was an amendment that was laid down by an SNP MSP called Michelle Thompson, um, which would pause the application for a gender recognition certificate for people who were already charged with rape or sexual assault. And, and the reason that this is a kind of important is because a lot of what's happening at now with that case that's crossed the border that people will be aware of, of Isla Bryson, formerly Adam Graham, um, wanting to be housed in a female prison, um, relates to that. Now, Michelle Thompson is not a troublemaker. Michelle Thompson is really on board the SNP party, but also the independence movement. She helped head up Business for Independence. Uh, during the election, uh, during the referendum campaign, she was quite a big figure. She's not a serial rebel. There's no such thing in the SNP. <laughs> she has also spoken movingly in the House of Commons when she was an MP about being raped at the age of fourteen. You know, so this is something that is of deep significance and personal significance to her, and lots of people know her and like her. And the idea that the party was whipped against something like this, that there wasn't allowed to be any sort of consideration. I, I think was really quite telling. There was really no amendments that were allowed to be passed on this, no matter where they came from, even from the SNP's own side. Uh, and there are people within the SNP who have tried to raise issues, not saying we can't have gender reform because, um, you know, they, they believe in that and it was in their manifesto, but particularly on self-ID and particularly on some of the ways in which you can combine making things easier for trans people um, with making sure there is security uh, for women and vulnerable women and women who've been abused and they feel like they weren't listened to. And and that's been where some of the internal difficulties have been for Nicola Sturgeon on this. And on the question of light speculation, mainly from people who are her critics rather than supporters about how long uh, she's got, you yourself stepped away from politics when you were the, sort of at the top of your game and knowing when is the right place to step away is really tough. I mean, lots of people talk about Jacinda Ardern, but, you know... <laughs> Most most political leaders, particularly if they're in power, uh, are, are sort of dragged out either by the electorate or by their colleagues, knowing when you've reached the end of the road is a difficult thing to get right, isn't it? Um, it is. I, I think, you know, I, I won't be alone uh, in, in saying that 
she hasn't seemed happy in a long time. You know, when she when she started. I mean, I mean, she's been in Holyrood since its inception in 1999. She was the deputy leader for ten years before taking over. She's now been the leader for eight years. I mean, she's been at this a long, long time and has changed over that. And I was a political journalist in Scotland before I became uh, a, a yeah. politician and was in the parliament uh, and going kind of toe to toe with her for ten years. Um, and I've seen changes in her. And and you know, the the kind of the kind of way in which she approaches it, the energy is different, the kind of the, the kind of enjoyment of the combat of politics isn't there and doesn't seem to have been there for a while. I mean, you see some of these press conferences and, and she's she's kind of squabbling with journalists and arguing with them and dismissing them. And it's you know, there there is a sense, a palpable sense, and it's remarked upon widely, that it's it's as if you know, she cannot be doing with being questioned. And actually, I've always found the cut and thrust of debate one of the best things about politics. I quite I quite like challenge and, you know, and clash and hammering out ideas. Like, that's one of the things that attracts me to it. And, and she seems to have somewhere along the line lost that. Uh, and I think that that's quite remarkable. But there's also a sense as well of, do you know what, something's not going right, nothing's going right. So the press conference that she had yesterday... Um, was designed to move things on, put a bit of pressure on Rishi Sunak. She was going to publish all of her tax returns, you know, and as one columnist in Scotland called it, throwing a dead vat on the table, you know, <laughs> just just move the debate. But what happened was when they released all the documents, they'd forgotten to take some of her bank details off it. So at the point at which she stood up and did this great thing about, I've released all of my documents. Well, well, actually, the party had had to pull them and there was a 404 message saying you can't you can't access them because they realised that her bank account number was still on it. Um and you know, and, and then when the questions came in, uh, she hadn't prepped for some of them. So the answer was, I can't recall when I know that my husband loaned the party I'm ahead of £107,000. But I know it was all his money because it wasn't marital assets, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And it's just like, ah, oh, you know, just like that sort of thing didn't used to happen to Nicola because she used to be on top of the comms. If nothing else, like the comms were always, I was going to use a bad word, very hot. Uh, you know, and and sometimes you just you can just sometimes feel it when it's fraying around the edges, and there's a sense in Scotland that's slightly fraying around the edges. But like I say, I don't think anyone should get ahead of themselves. Um, she will go at a time of her own choosing. There is nobody in the SNP and no grouping within it that has the strength or the motivation to to get rid of her. So, funny then, uh, do you think she'll still be there at the end of the year? Will she lead the SNP into the next election? I think those two questions are linked. Um, I think uh, if she stays to the end of the year, she will lead them in to the the next uh, election. I don't think she will do uh, a New Zealand Labour like just in the Ardern had, and and she picked up the reins six weeks before general election. Like I, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, there will be a proper and thought through transition, and it will be her person that wins whatever. Um, <laughs> contest there is after it i mean the, the you know the management of the the party management is so brutally impressive it is unbelievable uh you know and and they will make sure that that what they want to happen will happen um but but i can't tell you whether she stays to the end of the year or not um i think that's in the balance with Davidson there, former Conservative leader in Scotland. And of course, at Times Radio Presenter, you can catch her on Fridays on Times Radio from one o'clock. So let's get the view from the SNP now. And earlier I spoke to Emma Roddick. She's an SNP, MSP for Highlands and Islands. And I asked her if she accepts that Nicola Sturgeon is in some trouble. Well, I mean, it's one poll and I try not to dig too deep into, into individual polls, but 
I do think that saying, you know, we should talk about getting rid of a party leader because she's slightly less well in front of every other leader in Scotland in one poll, it's it's kind of akin to, you know, Celtic fans screaming to sack Ange because they conceded a goal. It's, <laughs> it lacks perspective and it's, it's obvious nonsense. We're still winning. We've won the last nine consecutive elections. Seven of those were were under Nicola Sturgeon. She's capable, formidable, and I think she's got a lot more left to give. Do you think she's still enjoying it? I mean, I hope so. <laughs> Um, I, I just wondered because I, I thought the press conference yesterday, she seemed a, unusually actually, because I think she's one of the you know the strongest communicators in in British politics. But she seemed a bit, I don't know, testy, a bit unsure of herself, whether it was on the the gender reform stuff or whether or not people could have a drink. I, it, it felt like someone who wasn't still on the top of her game. Well, I mean, I, I can't I can't speak for her and, and what she's thinking, but personally, you know, I'm kind of getting a bit exhausted this this month. It is. February, February is always hard, but you know we're we're kind of having the same questions put to us, all of us as MSPs, over and over. Which is not, of course, the fault of the journalists asking because it's still very much public discussion. But I feel I'm repeating myself a lot. I think the first minister is probably repeating herself a lot. Um, so yeah, testy maybe, but it's it's possibly earned. <laughs> Uh, and in terms of the, the sort of the longer term prospects for independence and for the SNP, um, we've got, you know, clearly the economy is right across the country is not not in great shape. Uh, the health service in Scotland is not in great shape. The education service in Scotland is not in great shape. Nor's public transport. You, know, you can look across a whole range of things. Uh, and actually, you know, sometimes uh, people have been in power uh, long enough. The, the 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 you know whether it's nine ten years um, that's you know people run out of ideas they run out of energy they run out of the patience of of the public I just wonder whether you're, you're worried if the the sort of the actually not brilliant domestic record of the SNP is ultimately harming your hopes of securing independence because the two things seem so intertwined. Well, yeah, I would say you know er- everyone is struggling at the moment, and I mean internationally, the UK is struggling, and we look at the NHS, yes. NHS in Scotland needs support and the Scottish government is looking at supporting it through you know what's been a very difficult winter so far and I expect there will still be challenges going through the next year but it is still performing better than comparable in other countries in the UK. This is about reacting to challenges and it's clear when when Scotland has you know the best performing A&Es in the UK something is being done right challenges are being dealt with professionally um, so I, I don't like to get into, oh, you know, has questions around Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, because I think when we saw in the pandemic, she really gained trust in the way she handled running the country. And part of that is is how big a contrast it was to the UK government's handling of the pandemic. But people do trust Nicola Sturgeon beyond those just in the SNP. And we've seen that she has international appeal, international respect. It, it's a bit baffling to me to discuss, you know, whether it's it's time for her to go based on on one poll, which still puts her well in front of everyone else. <laughs> um, so finally, then I know you just said you get irritated by a leadership question. I've got to ask what one final one. How confident are you that Nicola Sturgeon will lead the SNP into the next general election? Um, I'm I'm confident in that. Um, I'm more concerned that that she leads us into independence because I think she'll be the leader who who does that for the SNP. 
That was Emma Roddick, uh, SMP, MSP for the Highlands and Islands. Before that, we heard from Booth Davison, former Conservative leader. Of course, Times Radio presenter. Kezia Dugdale, former Scottish uh, Labour leader. Uh, John Curtis and Alex Massey as well. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 